and you just <laughs> straight into the door. Have you ever done that? Yeah. I've done that so many times. I've done it running. It's running, you know, and you just run into it. Well, listen, in uh, the book of Mark, you actually have that kind of thing happen to the disciples on three occasions. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, I uh, talked about uh, this part of Mark where Jesus says, listen, guys, what's going to happen is I'm going to get whacked. I'm going to get uh, beaten up. I'm going to get crucified. Then I'm going to rise from the dead. And then Peter goes, no, 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 we're not doing that. It's kind of like, and Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. That's kind of Peter hitting the door moment. And uh, he says, here's the deal. Uh, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, there's three times in the book of Mark where Jesus makes really clear about what's going to happen. And on each occasion, the disciples run into what Jesus is going to do, like running into a security screen door that hasn't unlatched properly. And so today... What I actually wanted to do is I actually wanted to look at the other two. So um, as it would turn out, the, one, uh, the, the second one is where we're up to in Mark, and then I'm going to jump forward into chapter 10 and do uh, the third one. The one thing I would say at this point in time as we consider this is uh, just to be cautious. Uh, these guys were guys who uh, were with Jesus. They saw him, they touched him, they smelled him, they talked to him, they listened to him, and they didn't get it, all right? So lest you sit there and think, I get Jesus, you probably just want to slow down just a little bit, all right? Because you probably don't have the same kind of exposure to Jesus that these guys had, and they completely just missed it, all right? So probably, it's just a bit of a tip, just, just saying, all right? If they're running into the security screen door, maybe we are a little bit too, but we don't quite uh, notice it. So today what I want to talk about is I want to talk about greatness, glory, and the gospel. Who here wants to be great? Oh, see, this is exactly what happened in the first service. See, do you think it's a trick question? It's usually people don't respond to things because, ah, oh, Sunday girl's up to something. He's going to show me in a minute. Ah, oh, seriously, who would like to be great? Yeah, okay. Okay, so let's read. We're going to read from uh, Mark 9, verse 30 to 37. They went on from there. Who's the they? Disciples and, and Jesus, good. They went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know. Yeah, this happens a bit with Jesus, right? And he doesn't want them to know stuff. Does anyone remember why? Anyone who's been around long enough with the Mark stuff we've been doing, why doesn't Jesus want the, the word about him to get out? Yeah, he gets mobbed. And what are people after when he gets mobbed? Yeah, they just want stuff out of him, all right? They don't really want him. They don't want to do things his way. They just want stuff out of him. So it kind of makes sense that Jesus sometimes is going to go, listen, just, can you just not tell, some, tell people what, what's just happened to you because they kind of get the wrong idea. He did, did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they'll kill him. Now, just note here at this point in time, have a look on the screen. Who does he say the Son of Man is going to be delivered into? Into the hands of who? Men, right? Now that's really interesting because last time, it was the church guys, the chief priests and the scribes, okay? Now Jesus is going, listen, the deal here is not that it's just the church guys have got a thing against me, but men, humanity in general, have got a thing against me coming and doing what I'm doing. Um, and they'll kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he'll rise. But they did not understand the saying. Now, that's pretty common for the disciples. And listen to the last bit. And they were afraid to ask him, all right? Now, there's probably some wisdom in that, all right? Some of the disciples are going... We saw what happened to Peter last time. He said something and he asked something. He just got carved up. It's like, I'm not going there. It's like, you can, Matthew, you, where you go, mate? 
we'll, uh, we'll serve you up to, the, uh, to be slaughtered, you know. Um, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? This is like one of the funniest passages in the whole Bible, right? This is like classic. It's like they get in there and they've walked a distance, obviously. They get in there and they just go, Jesus goes, hey, uh, fellas, like I heard you talking about something back there. What, what were you guys talking about? All right? And listen to this. Uh, but they kept silent. Now, anyone who's got kids knows when they go silent after a question, it's a bad sign. All right? And if you go right back, now, what's fascinating here, if you go back to Mark 3, there's a story in Mark 3 about Jesus healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And Jesus asked the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, the church guys, a question. And you know what they did? They were silent. All right? And what you notice here is that Jesus' friends and his enemies are not that different in terms of getting and understanding Jesus. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Interesting, isn't it? I remember, uh, and I think I've shared this before at the church, but when I was a young guy, I remember having an argument about who was the greatest with one of my mates at school. And you know what was going to make me the greatest? If my dad had a better whippersnipper. True. That's what it was. And you know, as it turned out, his dad did. So I sucked. That's kind of how it rolls. Um, And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He took a child and put him in the midst of them and take him in his arms. He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, let me ask you a quick question here. Does Jesus say that the disciples' desire to be great is wrong? No, see, he doesn't. Do you notice that? He's actually saying that the way that you guys are going about being great is the wrong way. Okay? So if I were to ask you again at this point in time, who here wants to be great? Who would put their hand up near? I want to be great. Now, some of you kind of go, I'm not going to put my hand up, right? Because in your head, you're just kind of going compared to someone else. But Jesus is not saying that. He's not playing a comparative game, okay? Uh, And I'll get to it a little bit later on. But if you're made in the image of God, how could you not be great if you reflect God? Do you get what I'm saying? How could you not be? You just kind of have to be. Anyway, before we get there, um, let me ask you this question. Why do you reckon the disciples are just assuming or what it just seems so natural for them to end up in this debate about who's greater than the other? What do you reckon? And you can throw in at this point. Where do you reckon that comes from? Any ideas? Yeah, probably pride. Yep. Any other ideas? Competitiveness. Yep. Yep. (coughs) Excuse me. They're all great answers, all right? In terms of a practical reality, I think they've probably just been discipled and shaped by their culture that they live in, whether it be the church culture or the broader culture. Uh, There's a uh, guy called Schlatter who's a a historian. He says this, at all points in worship and the administration of justice at meals, in all dealings, there certainly arose the question, who is the greater? And estimating the honour due to each was a task which had constantly to be fulfilled and was felt to be very important. This was the vibe of the day. 
all right? It's like, let's work out the pecking order and let's work out where you sit on the pecking order. Um, let me ask you this question. Do we do this? Yeah, we do. All right? It's kind of pecking order kind of stuff that goes on. Are we concerned about status? I think so. Atheist Alain de Botton thinks so. Has anyone ever heard of him? He wrote a book called uh, Status Anxiety. This is the cover of the book. It's one of the greatest pictures I've seen about status anxiety. Um, and what I want to do is I just want to show you a, um, a couple of minutes from a doco that he did that actually is aired on the ABC here in Australia uh, by the same title, Status Anxiety. So if I can get someone to just click on that video and start it for me, that'd be great. The past 200 years in the West have seen staggering increases in wealth and economic opportunity. And yet, there have been no comparable increases in our level of happiness. Despite being so much richer than a few generations ago, we're often more anxious about our own importance and achievements than our grandparents were. I call this modern state of restlessness and dissatisfaction status anxiety. I want to explain where I think much of it has come from, how it affects our lives, and what I believe we could do about it. If we're surprised that being richer hasn't made us happy and secure, it's because we don't understand the psychology of satisfaction. When do we feel we have enough? What enables us to feel prosperous and content? chiefly a comparison with other people. But it's not good enough to compare ourselves to people who are very remote from us in time and place. It's not going to help anyone to feel very rich to be told that they have infinitely more money than one of their medieval ancestors who lived in a mud-walled cottage. We only feel content when we compare ourselves to people who are like us, our friends and colleagues, our neighbours. In short, the sense of being a success is all relative. No one spends much time resenting the Queen or Bill Gates, but we're liable to get extremely resentful if someone we think is basically just like us moves into a bigger house or gets a slightly better job. We most envy people who we take to be our equals. He agrees with him. He agree with him? I think he's onto something. He's onto a mechanism that really uh, works. Now, obviously, as an atheist, he's not going to have a good in my view, what is a good uh, uh, remedy for that. But uh, he's really onto something, he's really noticed something. I thought it was fascinating when I did an internet search trying to find some stuff on his books, Status Anxiety, here's what came up. Uh, there's actually a whole website now that's a uh, fashion accessories website that's called Status Anxiety. Look at this, women's, possibly the best range of women's wallets and bags in the world. It would be, wouldn't it? And men's? Possibly the best range of men's wallets and bags in the world. <laughs> this one, all bags. Very handy if you're about to engage in an epic quest across the astral, whatever. So let me uh, ask you um, at this point, um, I wonder uh, what ladder you're on to get to greatness and to get to value. See, I, I think what actually happens a lot in our world is, um, and in the church is that we find a ladder to climb up to greatness and um, it kind of goes nowhere most of the time because it's not the ladder that Jesus would have us to be on. And what actually happens is we end up sometimes um, 
some people can get up there. How many people can be at the top of the ladder, do you reckon? Usually one. So someone's got to be the fastest or the quickest or the funniest or the best technology. And everyone else is somewhere on the ladder. And the people that are despairing that they will ever get to the top are at the bottom. And we're just kind of happy if we're above people in a sense, but we're still not really ever completely happy because we're trying to get up the ladder. And I would ask you this morning, who is your equal that you measure yourself by? How do you measure your greatness today? You see, I think we measure our greatness on a daily basis. Um, And we measure our our greatness by our success. I've uh, thought for a good while now uh, that if we actually... If most adults, sorry, let me start that again. I've thought for a while now that if you put adults back into a high school environment, that they'll act probably the same way that teenagers act. If you put them in a competitive, peer-driven environment like that. All right? And I think it's true. I mean, I've been in um, places where you're doing training and there's a sense of competitiveness in the training that you're doing and adults just act the same way as teenagers. Uh, It may not be quite as intense, but they by and large act the same way as teenagers. But he's going to preach in a minute. Good on you, champ. That's good. <laughs> hey, I'm not Jesus, all right? And the chances are that there's some people sitting here now that struggle with their own personal value. Uh, you can be a teenager who struggles with that. You can be a mature adult who struggles with that. Uh, some people have settled their value. Uh, you see, I actually believe that what actually happens with adults is adults work out what their strengths and weaknesses are. They remove all the influences from their life that would put pressure on them and they get themselves to a point where they're, they're getting their, their, uh, their value and their strengths and their weaknesses, all right? Um, and they kind of insulate themselves from the pressures that would make them question their value. But the problem is that they're, they're kind of defining their own value themselves. It's like I'm valuable because of this thing that I'm good at and I've made sure that I only get to operate in the area that I'm good at. Do you get what I'm saying? So in a sense, because some of you kind of go, no, I don't think about my own value. I'm all good. I know that I'm valuable. But what actually might have happened to you is not that you've actually transitioned to God's definition of what brings value, but you've actually transitioned to your own definition. And in a sense, you've kind of become God in your own life. and You've kind of gone, I'm valuable because I do these things. Sometimes people can say things like, I don't really care what anyone else thinks. And in that case, those people a lot of the time only care what they think. And so they've kind of become God over their own life and define what's actually a good thing to do and what brings value and greatness. You with me? So you don't kind of get away from it in a sense. You know, you can rebel against the social norms and you could say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not climbing up. I'm not doing what Alain de Botton's saying. But you've actually transitioned to a whole other problem where you've become the definer of your own life. You've become your own God. You see, it's quite a a common human character trait that we arrange for our own glory, don't we? We arrange for our own greatness. And that's what's going on with the disciples here in Mark chapter 9. Last night, uh, as I was watching the Wallabies play the All Blacks, <coughs> excuse me, um, one of the uh, bench players for the Wallabies is uh, Matt Tamua. And um, he's been sponsored by Nivea or something. Just, that's just, yeah, I know, that's what I think. I'm just going to go, he's out there getting smashed by All Blacks and he's sponsored by Nivea. I don't even know what that is. But anyway, a little ticker tape thing comes across the bottom of the screen. And uh, I wish I could have taken a photo, but I didn't know when it was going to come up. It came up at least twice that I saw it and it said this. Uh, Matt Tamua says, 
when you do something good for someone else, you do something for yourself. All right? Now, you know what that is, don't you? It's like if you're doing something for someone else so you can do something good for yourself, you're not doing it for someone else. True? That's kind of the deal. And this is part of the bond. I think this is the bond that people get in. Like the disciples, they're kind of going, what can I do that's going to make me great? Or what am I that makes me great? Or, or what job have I got that makes me great? Or what insight do I have that makes me great? It becomes impossible to love anyone at that point. Do you see that? Because you, just, you kind of just love yourself, really. And the question really is, and this would be a, a question that, um, that Jesus probably would ask us, is what's going to break us from this addiction to trying to get to greatness? ourselves now listen the original call for you and for humanity was this back in genesis 1 and 2 it was to be made in god's image okay you're meant to be in his likeness now let me just give you a little bit of technical stuff historically in the old testament back in the day when moses was writing what would actually happen in nations is there would be a god over a particular area of the land and they would set up an image like a physical image that would stand uh, symbolizing the authority of that god over that region okay and that would be an idol okay so if you actually go to the hebrew word behind the word image that god created humanity in his image what you've actually got is a word that can also be translated and is translated idol in other parts of the old testament okay so it looks like that other gods have kind of knocked off the christian thing right and the way that god always meant it to be is that god is the one who's in charge of this whole earth and he puts us on this earth made in his image to be his representatives to represent his rule over the place you with me so far and you're meant to look like him not literally physically but you're meant to look like him you're meant to reflect his goodness and if that's how you're meant to be how could you be anything else but great you with me? How could you? Like, if you're a mirror, a mirror doesn't become great by imaging, something, imaging itself, does it? A mirror becomes great by imaging something great, doesn't it? And that's kind of how God built, built you to work. It's like image and mirror God. Look like Him and be His representative. So, what we actually have is we have a God who serves, don't we? That's all we've got. And can you see what Jesus is saying here? He says, if you serve, you're being just like me and you're going to be great if you're just like me. This is Jesus saying, look, the way up is down. You don't come over in power and authority, you come under in humility and service. And this is what Philippians 2 says, isn't it? Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus was the most humble and he became the most, most highly exalted of anyone. That's just how the universe rolls. Now, you can be out of sync with that if you want to be, but that's just how it rolls. Greatness, Jesus is saying, comes from serving. Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. What's he? He's glorious. Now, at this point, you just kind of go to it. So are you saying that Jesus made us to be glorious? Yeah, but not in the same way as him, right? He is the source of glory. Remember that from a couple of weeks ago with the transfiguration. We are reflectors of glory. But you better be great if you image God because he is great. So let's have a look at glory. Now, skipping forward into Mark 10, this is the third interchange between the disciples (coughs) and Jesus. 
uh, over his death. And they're on the road going up to Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem to Jesus? Yeah, but just be a bit more confident. Yeah, he's going to be crucified, right? And Jesus is walking ahead of them. I'll just pause on that for a bit. He's going to the place where he's going to get whacked and he's leaving them behind in his dust. You know, I mean, I often say to my sons when we're walking somewhere, they'll tend to drop behind probably because their legs are half the size of mine. But I say, one of my lines to them is I say, you're not my dog, you're my son and I want you to walk next to me. So can you hurry up and, and walk next to me? Um, and what's kind of going on here is the disciples are kind of, Jesus is going up to his death and he's leading the pack. And what's their response? They were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. <laughs> so you get this thing with Jesus, like there's this mixture of amazement um, and fear uh, at some level. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he'll rise. And this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I meant to laugh at that point. Like, seriously? Like, if you had a kid that came up to you and said, Mom or Dad, we want you to, to do whatever we ask next, what would you say? Get out of here. <laughs> they want to talk to you. What a huge call. It's like, can you see this? It's like, this is, there's like about 10 millimetres between them smashing into the screen door at this point. Do you get what I'm saying? They flick the thing down. You know that the tongue's still in the latch and they're just about to smash into it, all right? That's kind of this moment. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't that an incredibly gracious answer? It's like they're, they're, they're so got it wrong. But Jesus says, well, let me know what you want me to do. And we'll talk about it. They said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. That's all. Just left and right in glory next to you. That's all. It's like, I don't know, billions. There's going to be billions of Christians up. There. We'll just be happy left and right. That's, that's all. It's nothing much. Um, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup of God's wrath? And suffering that he's going to drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. <coughs> they said to him, yes, we are able. good. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand on my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, I love this, they began to be indignant at James and John. You see that? Now we're back in chapter 9 again. You blokes are saying you're the greatest. We're not happy with this. You're trying to get left and right. There's nothing left after left. It's probably front and back, I guess. I don't know, but do you know what I'm saying? It's like, you can imagine it, can't you? This is like a teenage friendship group and all of a sudden someone's getting preferential treatment and maybe it's work for you. And you're just going to get fired up about it, you know, and annoyed about it. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, even though it is. Uh, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. Who's in the glory here? No, serious. Who's in the glory? Put your hand up if it's like, I'm in the glory. Hey, I'm in the glory. I love glory and I'd like to get as much of it as possible. I remember watching um, the, uh, the Dave Matthews band play in uh, Central Park on a DVD and the crowd just going nuts. And you know what? I just wanted to be the drummer. You know why? Because there was so much glory going to the band. I'm just going, oh, I would love to be doing that. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, went down to a, um, a Wallabies game in Brisbane against the Springboks. And, um, man, there was some serious glory at the end. There was a try that almost looked like a try, but it mightn't have been a try. And then it went to the television match official and the crowd's there. And if they, you know, the buzzer's gone. So if they didn't get the try, they lose the game. If they get it, they've won. And we got it. And the crowd went nuts. And there was glory going off there at the end of that Wallabies game. Um, glory i'm absolutely persuaded that most of us are gunning for it okay um we want people to like us is some kind of expression of that and the disciples are into glory um and i wonder at this point in time i mean you can see with the disciples here that their desire for glory that jesus is kind of meant to fit in with that you see that that's why they're asking so i really want you just to fit in with my desire for glory here um and it made me as i was preparing this i thought i wonder whether church has ever used jesus to get glory (laughs) do you think i think so is following jesus a way for you to get ahead to get glory or this one do you not do things that jesus calls you to do because you'd rather have the glory that exists over here rather than the struggle or the the ridicule or whatever that it might be over here have, have you ever had the situation where you've been having a conversation with someone and you there was just a really good time to just talk about jesus and you didn't because you thought they'd think you were stupid if you've ever had that moment you're into glory you get that because that's what it is it's like i'm not going to do this because i want the glory over here And then you've got people who uh, actually don't care about anyone else's definition of glory. They just define it for themselves. And I wonder whether James and John's, you know, we can look at them and we kind of go, oh, what a bunch of doofuses, you know, like seriously, is it that hard, you know? But I wonder whether their desire for self-glory um, is a problem for us also. So just because you've asked, I've decided that I'll help you with that. All right, so I'm going to give you 12 questions. And if you've got an answer for any one of these, you've probably got a problem with self-glory, okay? Now, if you get to the end, you kind of go, no, I'm all clean, we'll pray for humility or something. <laughs> all right, here we go. Where in your life is there evidence of self-glory? Number two, where are you more dominant than you should be? Where do you fail to listen when you should Where do you attempt to control things that you don't need to control? Where are you tempted to speak more than you should? Where do you fail to recognize and esteem the gifts of others? That's a big one, right? Because if you know someone who's got similar kind of skills and giftings to you, and you're in that competitive greatness thing, you're just kind of going to try not to notice it, right? And it'd be nice to get some goss on them, wouldn't it? Do you know what I'm saying? So let's just pull them. If I can get them down a couple of pegs, that'll mean they're under me. And then I'll be okay. 
Where are you unwilling to examine your weaknesses and admit your failures? Sure sign you've got a problem with self-glory. Where are you tempted to think of yourself as more essential than you actually are? Ah, I'm a big crook this morning. It's not the end of the world. I was kind of thinking maybe I wasn't going to preach. I sent a message to Nathan last night saying, um, mate, you might want to just get your head around the fact that you might need to preach in the morning because it wasn't going so well. And I, I, I didn't even get a message back, actually, <laughs> at that point. But here's the thing, you know, the project's not. The project doesn't fall apart if I don't show up. It doesn't fall apart if you don't show up. It doesn't fall apart if three elders decide that they're going to step down. Do you get what I'm saying? And they're not, but do you get what I'm saying? It's not like you can get in. If you're in the glory, you can kind of start to think, oh, people can't do this without me. They can do it without me. God can do it without me. He can do it without you. All right? Here's the thing. Uh, he wants to do it with you, and all that's going to be at risk is your enjoyment, really. It's like he'll, he's going to do it anyway. It's just you'll miss out. That's kind of how it works. Where do you care too much about people's respect, esteem, and appreciation? Where do you find it easier to confront than to receive confrontation? Where are you too confident of your own strength and wisdom? Where does self-trust inhibit trust in Christ? How'd you go? A few struggles. Uh, anyone with me? It's like probably 12 out of 12. I'm in trouble on 12, you know. That's probably how I feel. I'd... Now, you know, it's interesting. This is a little bit similar to what I was talking about before with greatness, you know. God actually is planning for you to be glorious one day and he's making that happen right now if you love him and you follow him. So the issue here is not so much, uh, will I be glorious? The issue here is, will I be trying to make myself the source of glory or will I have reflected glory? Now, do you know how you can get glory? How you get glory is you get glory by being humble and serving. That's what Jesus is saying. Not so much here, but in the other passage, it's like you're going to become great by serving and being humble. And do you know, I reckon there's a real fear that exists in the midst of humility. You know what that is? I'm going to disappear. If I truly serve people and humble myself, I'm going to disappear. But I want to suggest to you today that your true humanity comes out when you serve and when you're being humble. And there is a glory that's associated with serving and humility that you're not going to get anywhere else. Uh, I'm sure that many of you have been impacted by hearing stories about Mother Teresa. True? Now, honestly, let's just be honest, not in terms of the source of glory, but reflected glory. When you think about Mother Teresa and the work that she's done in Calcutta, she is a glorious woman, isn't she? And uh, I think Paul Miller says that uh, the best love is often, often secret. That's what he says, the best love is often secret. And hasn't that been the case for Mother Teresa? She has secretly loved thousands probably in Calcutta. And she is a glorious woman. And she has done far more glorious things, hasn't she? Than the best CEO. And I think that's what people recognise, don't they? Just recognise there is something really, really special. When you serve and when you humble yourself, you won't disappear. You'll become like God. <laughs> You'll image him. 
You're not going to become God. That's our whole deal, right? Is we keep wanting to be, be God, right? We don't want to be God, but we do want to become like God in the sense that we're reflecting and we're images of Him. So I want to zip you through seven points about humility really quick. This is from Paul Miller. Uh, really good stuff on humility. Ready? Here we go. Humility is physical. It involves a physical placement that is, in some way, lower. You should be able to see it. Someone who's humble, you should be able to see some cues that there's some humility that's uh, going on there. You can see humility. It is not vague. We see humility and thankfulness, asking for permission, a mission that you don't know. Like if someone comes up to you and they've um, got a curly question for you, you just kind of go, well, I don't know. You know, I mean, Ed Welsh kind of said that last week. He said, whenever someone's got a personal problem, he goes, the most theologically correct answer to give at that point is, I don't know. You know, because you're not, you're not the fixer of everything that goes on in the universe. So admitting that you don't know would be a tangible way to see humility. This is um, Paul Miller. It can feel like you're disappearing. When you are humble, people don't notice you. That's, that really kind of is in conflict, isn't it, with that kind of striving for greatness where we would be great in and of ourselves. Many sins such as anger, jealousy and quarrelling are rooted in our unwillingness to take the low place. Is that true? When others treat us badly, they're usually putting us in a low place so we lash out because we don't like the low place. You ever been in that, that situation where someone treats you like dirt? You just kind of go, well, I don't want to be like dirt. I want to be up here. And that's kind of part of the conflict for you. And I'm not saying that it makes it right what other people do, but it makes it particularly painful. What about this though? Once you get over the shock, the low place is a place of deep soul rest. Is that true? You see, if you go back to that ladder picture that I had, that's noisy, isn't it? Like it's just noisy. It's a noisy head. It's a noisy heart. It's, you know, you might get to the top, but you, what do you have to do once you get to the top? Stay there, all right? That's what you need to do. So you've got to keep fighting and it's just a busyness and a guardedness and a noisiness up there. Whereas Paul Miller is saying, no, actually, once you get over the shock of being in the low place, you'll find that it's actually a place of deep soul rest. He says, uh, point number six here, you discover people in the low place. Has anyone ever noticed that? It's like all of a sudden there's all these people that you just didn't notice before and you didn't interact with them. It's like entering a darkened room full of friends. At first you think you're alone, you can't make out anyone. But then as your eyes adjust to the light, you begin to see friends everywhere. Maybe people that you didn't notice when you are up higher. It's true, isn't it? And number seven there, the great joy of the low place is that it is where God dwells with a humble and a contrite of heart when jesus told us to take the lowest place he was quoting proverbs 25 his whole life was a lowering of himself even if someone puts us in a low place we can make the decision to go there we can accept what god has brought into our life when we make the choice to take the lower place listen to this you against me becomes god with me isn't that good yeah it's been a little bit intense maybe today are you okay so I want to finish with some gospel. What's gospel? Good news. All right? So I want to, want to finish with some good news for you. Okay? Here's the gospel that comes out in the Mark 10 version of the glory thing with uh, James and John. Uh, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles ordered over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Here's what God's done. Here's the gospel. If you don't know Jesus here today, here's the gospel. You've sinned and you're in trouble. But it could be okay for you because Jesus has actually come to this world and he's died on the cross. He's paid the penalty for your sins so that you could be part of the royal family again. That's what he's done. Now, the reason why I'm saying it could be okay is because it depends upon you actually responding to God by faith and trusting in him. And what we see up here is uh, Mark writing here that um, Jesus actually didn't come to dominate. He came to serve and to pay the ransom to set you free uh, from, the, from the bondage that you were in. <coughs> so what does this change for us? Well, here's the first one. The gospel frees you from comparison listen to this this is john 21 verse 20 to 23 this is just after jesus has uh been resurrected he has this uh conversation with peter he tells peter to go and feed his sheep and then peter turns around and saw the disciple whom jesus loved which is john following them the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said lord who is it that is going to betray you when peter saw him listen to this He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What's going on him? Yeah, there's competition and competitiveness going on, right? Peter still doesn't really get it at some level. So he's kind of going, well, you've just told me what to do with the church. Well, what are you going to tell him? Do you get that? That's that kind of deal that's actually going on there. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Which is kind of a nice way to say, None of your business, isn't it? Do you see this here? The gospel frees you from comparison because it's not about what you do. It's not about what you have to do to be worth something. It's not a comparative thing between you and anyone else. You're just one of God's children if you trust in him by faith. And you just need to do what he asks you to do. So it doesn't matter whether you get to preach at the project on Sunday morning or you get to preach at another church in Australia that's got 3,000 people or you get to set up chairs at the project or you get to sweep the floor or vacuum the floor somewhere at the end of church. Do you get what I'm saying? It's about what is Jesus calling you to do. You're one of his kids. You don't need to have the comparison thing and what the gospel does is it removes the need for you to compare yourself. You don't have to be working to make yourself great anymore. You're part of the royal family. You with me? That's exciting, isn't it? That's good. I mean, if you, it'd be really interesting, wouldn't it? I mean, if you could just have seven days, maybe you don't do it anyway, maybe it's just me. Imagine having seven days where you didn't compare yourself to anyone else at all, even once. Maybe you don't, and you just kind of go, no, that was my last week. And maybe it is, right? But I think there's some people who are a bit more attuned to comparison than others. First one, the gospel frees you from comparison. Number two, The gospel frees you to be you. Now, I want you to notice something here about Matthew, all right? You might remember back in Mark 2, uh, I talked about Matthew, who was uh, in Mark 2 called Levi, um, the tax collector, right? Now, just notice how Matthew is identified here. And as he passed by, Jesus, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. How's Matthew being identified there? Yeah, by his father. See that? Now, this is what Mark wrote. Here's what Luke wrote. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. How's Matthew being identified here? 
as a tax collector, so by his profession. Okay? Listen to what Matthew writes about himself. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Do you see the tenderness there? It's like he doesn't have to be someone else's son anymore. For him, Jesus dealt with him. He doesn't have to be his profession. Do you get what I'm saying? There's not something that he has to be to be worth something. The gospel actually says, no, Jesus has come and you don't have to do anything to be worthy. He just loves you. And when he loves you and you respond to him in trust, you become his child. And you don't get identified by your profession or by your family anymore. What about this one? The gospel restores quietness and peace. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, Psalm 131. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and evermore. You see, the gospel actually brings quietness and peace. Why? Because I'm not striving after things that are beyond me and trying to achieve things to make myself valuable or to get glory. Some of you might be going, what's this whole deal about a weaned child with its mother and all that sort of stuff? Well, um, without going into the details of it. I mean, most mums here who have uh, fed their babies would know babies get particularly agitated just before feeding starts. You know, it's just gonna all of a sudden a switch is flicked and it's like, you know, everything's going a bit crazy. But um, what's the psalmist saying? He's saying, no. If you don't go after things too great and too marvelous for you and you humble yourself, it's actually a very, very peaceful place. Here's the last um, thing that I'll be sharing today about the, uh, the gospel. The gospel restores your original glory. Have a look at that first scripture there, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Notice that, beholding God and actually seeing God are being transformed into the same, what's that word? Image, do you see that? So you're actually being restored. If you love Jesus, you're being restored as an imager of him. And what happens when you're restored as an imager of him? From one degree of what? Glory to another, okay? So glory, your The glory of God is coming upon you as you are restored as an imager of him. And you can see that um, theme of glorification in Romans 8.30 as well. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the weird thing, isn't it? I mean, in one sense, you kind of go, Jesus is not saying um, you should not be great. He's not saying you should not ever have any glory. The big thing for us is we just want to be the source of it most of the time. It's like, I want to be great on my own terms. I want to be glorious myself. And it's weird because it's kind of like God's going, oh, I'm really keen to share that with you. But a lot of the time we just kind of go, I don't want to share it. I just want to be it rather than share it. C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, I'll just read a a section of this and then close with uh, communion. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. So he's talking about glory there. It's going to be complete one day. Your glory will be complete. Your reflected glory will be complete. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. 
All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. And then a little bit further down he says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. So perceptive. So where does this leave us? It leaves us here. You don't need to do good things to feel better about yourself anymore. You don't need to do good things to be connected to God. You see, when we see Jesus as the one who has sacrificed himself to us, such that we are worth the world to him, it's going to be different for us. See, we're not going to need people. Sorry, we're not going to need to help people so that we can feel better about ourselves. We'll want to help other people. We'll want to serve them. And we'll want to serve them because that's what God does and we'll be imitating him. See, most people, the typical way of doing things in our culture is to uh, try to influence people by lording it over them, by seeking power and control. It's kind of like in our culture. It's like if I can have power, wealth and connections, I can get my own way. But the way and the route to gaining influence is not power. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, influence that's gained through control and power doesn't really change society. Who knows that's true? It just doesn't do it because it doesn't change hearts. It just bends behavior you see if you serve like jesus people will give you influence aren't they and that's kind of how it works with jesus he serves us and we give him influence over us if the very heart of your worldview is a man dying for his enemies then the way you are going to win influence in society and in the church and anywhere is through service rather than through power and control